On the Empire Podcast this week, we follow the immortal advice of Fred Durst and keep brolin, brolin, brolin. Nobody came in. Awesome. As Josh Brolin pops in to talk Labor Day, Jack O'Connell pops by to talk gritty Brit flick startup, and there's usual mix of movie news and nonsense on the only movie podcast I thinks Rebecca Ferguson should do the next Bond theme. Uh, hello, Pod. I'm Chris Hewitt, and welcome to the Empire Podcast. As ever, I'm joined by three colleagues who quickly came when I blew on my conch. First up is our art house guru, a man who, like Ferronique, leads a double life. By day, he's witty, cultured, wise. He embraces intelligent subtitled films about the meaning of life. By night... He's a Spurs fan. Hello, Phil Simeon. <laughs> How are you? Um, good, thanks, Chris. Were you surprised when... Um, it's a really generous introduction. We had, you know, it is a generous Fictional introduction. Fictional as well, but well, I appreciated partially. it very much. You are a Spurs fan. It's unconscionable. Uh, next up is our rambunctious podcast editor, Ali Plum, a man who has the audacity to correct me every time I get the name of the software he uses to edit the podcast wrong. Hello, Ali Plum. Hello, Chris Hewitt. Did I get it wrong or right? Doesn't matter. Uh, and last but not least, and joining us for the first time in ages, is the wonderful Ollie Richards... He heeded my call not on a conch, but on WhatsApp, which is probably how Lord of the Flies would actually play out these days. Hello, Ollie. How are you? Hello. That was the nicest intro you've ever given me. I don't know. I, what was I? What do I usually say for you? I can't, so they're, long. they're not. You're not allowed to use those words. I don't think. <laughs> I'm sure I've compared you to James King. In the uh, everyone has probably that, including James King. Yeah. Okay. It's, it's a pleasure to have you here. Thank you very much. You know, if we they just turn up. How did you get in the building, Ollie? <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. I've always. <laughs> I think he lives here. I came in the laundry bag. <laughs> all right. So uh, you've been sending questions all week uh, via Twitter, via email, via Facebook. Uh, let's take one now from at Top Film Tip, who says, uh, who does the best utterly unhinged angry man acting in Hollywood? Sam Jackson, Woody Harrelson, Joe Pesci or others? Jack Nicholson does a mean, mean man. I'm told Nick Cage also does good angry. Hey, boy, say, etc. Yeah, that one. Yeah, he's nuts. Uh, Michael Keaton is very good at going off the, the deep end, uh, especially in his early movies. He's great in um, uh, that bit in Batman where he explodes at the Joker and he goes, you want to get nuts? Come on, let's get nuts. And it's, oh, it's Also brutal. Jack Frost. Jack Frost, yeah, where he kills his family. Yeah, that was good. <laughs> Enjoyed that one. Uh, I, I would also point out Jura number two from 12 Angry Men. <laughs> Lee, Lee, J, Lee J. Cobb yeah. does does good angry and literally so good they named the, the film after him it, <laughs> what Lee J no 12 Angry Men <laughs> <laughs> I thought you meant Cobb <laughs> <laughs> what <laughs> Tommy Lee Jones in Cobb Tommy Lee Jones yeah Tommy Lee Jones does good angry well if you flip the question around and ask who normally is quite a sort of docile serene screen presence who would make a great explosive Michael Douglas falling down type rage furnace who do you think <laughs> rage furnace Steve Carell might do a good job with that he's playing a serial killer in his next movie isn't he mm, uh, quite a quiet country. one though isn't yeah. he Despicable Me 3 <laughs> but presumably every minion gets stabbed in the forehead <laughs> with a fork I think I've had dreams about that yeah me too um, that's a great question though Phil let's, let's think more upon that the um, rage furnace let's Ollie, come back think- to that Philip Seymour Hoffman was always excellent at angry outbursts yeah in um, Punch Drunk Love that was amazing on the phone. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Shut up, shut up, shut up, shut up. And if you're talking about people who get angry for a living, uh, Adam Sandler, his, the entire first half of his career was based on yeah. blues of rage. And that's what the uh, PTA used. So effectively, in Punch Drunk Love. But, you know, Happy Gilmore is just filled with rage and hatred. Yeah. Sir Ben oh. Kingsley is absolutely fucking livid in Gandhi. I mean, oh he seriously goes off the chain. No, 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 no. <laughs> just give it a rest. He's just by the swimming pool giving it... Oh, what a... Well, the, the question says Hollywood, but you know, I immediately think of people who just scare the crap out of me. I think this, the, I took this question as people 
who if you were in a room with this character you would not want to be in that room with that character very much longer and you know Robert Carlyle is Bigby you know Robert Carlyle mm. is basically any character <laughs> you just don't, you know, he's just he's liable to explode at any second and uh, uh, Michael Caine is brilliant at exploding into rage at the drop of a hat mm, like mm. in uh, that movie that made me feel quite uncomfortable Mother Christmas Carol Mother Christmas Carol when he absolutely he puts a fork into the ghost of Christmas past's head <laughs> uh, no uh, I'm thinking of of uh, Harry Brown yeah which yeah is a difficult film get Carter yeah he's, he's a bit angry there I guess you'd think but going back a bit mm-hmm. you could do an awful lot worse for Rage and Raw Fury than Jimmy Cagney and White Heat oh that's a good point um, just deranged fury and psychosis and still kind of sort of charismatic with it. Tashiro Mifune in Throne of Blood is incredibly furious um, and obviously uh, I had Sexy Beast as well which is probably the high watermark of on screen rage. I thought you'd say Peter Finch Good point, Peter Finch in Network Yeah, won an Oscar for it, for, for his anger mm. so we should at least mention him Good point, absolutely. What about the three people at uh, Top Film Tip mentioned? Sam Jackson's very good at being angry almost angry for a living I guess these guys, Woody Harrelson less so. That's no, that, I that seems like a strange one. Yeah, um, but Joe Pesci certainly. Yeah, you know these are guys who are you're angry across multiple films. I always like that in uh, even though he's not a man known for being angry. In almost every Tom Cruise film, there'll be a moment where he'll just have a very small meltdown, mm. and he usually kicks something <laughs> backward as well. Yeah. Yes, his his furious uh, producer in Tropic Thunder. Yes, uh, what's his name again? Uh, uh, Len Grossman. Yeah. Les Grossman. Yes. Les Grossman. Take one step back and literally fuck your face <laughs> is is just uh, also oh hold on oh, um, it's coming to him Hulk Hogan wait wait we oh, got, we got yeah. a message it's coming yeah it's coming is it Tim <laughs> Sherwood I'm getting it through <laughs> on the teleprinter C-fax, C-fax Dennis Farina yeah Dennis Farina oh, yeah. in Get Shorty in Midnight in Midnight Run in everything yeah awesome to answer your question about who you wouldn't expect to get angry, who I'd love to see as an angry man. I would like to see a Taken-style action movie starring Hugh Grant. Yes. Why not? What I'm, would his particular set of particular set of skills be? I think his catchphrase would be as he just shoves the fork into the enemy's head. Whoopsie Daisy. Whoopsie Daisy. With a Statham voice. Yeah, I like it. Surely he'd go after the Daily Mail. Editor by editor, no yeah. one shall be left unforked in the forehead. Little Daily Mail pieces of them back to the editor. Nice. One bit at a time. That'll make a good story. Hacked go. off one piece <laughs> at a time. I call it Deadline. <laughs> I like mm. it. Uh, that's, you know, someone make that movie, please. Four uh, Weddings and a Bloodbath. You know, we could be talking with Hugh Grant about that film this time next year. Earning 20%? Yeah. I think we should claim a little bit. Okay. All right, let's move on. The next question is from at Red Macca nineteen seventy six, who asks, "Who is the biggest spoiler in the office, and what are the biggest spoils that have happened?" By this, I guess he means people who inadvertently or advertently uh, give away endings of movies, TV shows, books, video games, uh, whatnot, and what's the biggest one that's happened to us? Dan Jolin does it all the time. Shall we just say that there are probably going to be spoilers in this section? And he just doesn't care. Well, if the spoilers are films that have been and gone, I think we should, yeah. be, should be fine. Any credit sting of any Marvel movie, Dan will walk up and say to someone in the online team, "So what's what's that about? What was what was the uh, what was the what's his face about?" And I'll go, "Oh, good." Well, Nick uh, Nick Assembly is not here today. Phil, your brother. Um, Which? But he is your brother. Nick, do you remember him? Nick. Nick. Nick, Nick, Nick. It rings a bell. It rings a bell. He is probably the biggest inadvertent spoiler. Is he? Yeah. 
is in that he he spoiled the ending of Gravity for someone recently. I think for Dan, in fact, and then uh, he went and was telling our editor Mark about it, how he spoiled it, the ending of Gravity for Dan and then spoiled it for Mark as well who hadn't seen it <laughs> so uh, he just tends to do that he just tends to blunder in the oh, situation assuming that people have seen the things that he has seen, uh, he, has seen. he spoiled the, the death of a major major character in um, in The Wire for James Dyer did he? years ago what a little because he came in the next morning and went hey what about the death of eh, yes eh, and uh, James called him eh, eh, back. <laughs> so yeah he tends to do it um, uh, yeah I, I I don't know who's the biggest spoiler in the office. I tend to spoil things. You're not I beyond to, it. I'm. I'm not. Yeah. I. Yeah. Because I kind of have a weird. I. I do this thing where I. I think we talked about this on the podcast maybe once or twice before. But I do this weird thing where, uh, I tend to look up spoilers. Mm. Oh, that's right. Why? Yes. Yeah. Why You're a maniac. You yeah. It's it. It's mainly for TV shows and quite often for TV shows I don't watch, which is even weirder. But uh, I tend to uh, look up spoilers so I kind of can prepare myself and so I can watch the the. The, the show without any tension, without any. That, but that yeah. surely that defeats the entire it's purpose madness. of the I show. But, madness, but but that's quite a common thing. There are a lot yeah. of people who will before some big show is coming back, they'll try and find out as much that happens. Like who's going to die? So, why? Why yeah. would you do that? Yeah, like if Billy Crystal. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Always read the ending first in case you die. To when Harry met Sally. Yes. Watch. They should put the Marvel uh, post credit sting before the film. In case you die during the film. So I never understand the Marvel end credits things anyway. It's always about characters <laughs> I've never heard That's of. why I'm always come out of the film and just see you and Dan in conference <laughs> just looking really confused. Uh, I'd join you in that one. I don't know. I, I think it's worth stressing that we try really hard not to spoil things for anyone. Friends, yeah. family, readers, apart from Nick, obviously, as much as possible. Sometimes it can be difficult to know where the line is between things that are spoilable because mm-hmm. they've been in circulation for such a long time. You know, if you're talking about Fritz Lang's M, I think it's probably okay mm. to give away the ending at There's this point. There's a statute of limitations. But there is a statute of yeah. limitation, but you know, the line's a bit blurry and some people get a bit annoyed about that. Um, but in terms of like stuff that we do on the website or in the magazine, I think there's a real effort to try and not spoil things and not go into too much plot detail that would detract from people's enjoyment mm-hmm. of the story. Mm-hmm. Sometimes people's idea of where that line lies differs from other people's. We, so, are, we are the originators of the uh, spoiler podcast, so we are... We are so enthralled to the spoiler, mm. you know, problem that yes. we, we we you know do something about it. Hermetically yeah. seal all the spoilers into one kind of audio bomb, massive bomb of spoilerness. As FX used to do, didn't they? They used to have, uh, in fact, they maybe still do. Um, they used to have a sealed section within the magazine that was literally called the spoiler zone, and it was for TV shows. So mm. they would, you know, you would open it up and go, "Oh, so that's what happened in." last week's next gen or whatever now printing costs have skyrocketed <laughs> yeah, presumably I, they may still do it I don't know if anyone saw Jennifer Lawrence having Homeland season oh, yeah. 3 ruined for her oh on the red God. carpet that is one of the most excruciating things I think yeah, I've yeah. seen on the internet oh, we're not above it I mean I, I, I last year I was uh, castigated by uh, a whole bunch of readers because um, this was after the movies were released uh, giving away something in Evil Dead and giving away a major character revelation in uh, Star Trek Into Darkness. I almost said Star Trek: The Wrath of Khan. Oops, did it again. Um, and uh, uh, you know, because I calculated it was like we were going to be on sale about three weeks after the movie mm-hmm. was out, and I was, oh, that's fine, that's okay. If you 
you know, if you really want to see the movie, you'll have seen it within that time frame. Evidently not. Yeah. And I was uh, I was drawn, dragged over the coals. I got uh, told off on Twitter the other day for spoilers in my Lego movie review. But only the version of the magazine. And I, I stress, uh, because the film had been out for, I think, two or three weeks by then, it was felt that it was, you know, it made sense to yeah. discuss it in a larger larger context. And in order to do that, you had to spoil certain things. But it, it is heavily flagged up. But it does, you know, people get very sensitive about that. I, I I, yeah, but I mean, f- I could sort of understand where the Khan thing comes from because people are very much wed to the Star Trek mythology and they saw the Wrath of Khan, so that's a kind of a, a cool reveal, I suppose, to a point. But with the Lego movie, uh, without giving away the ending, when you get to the ending, I wasn't like, I, if I'd known about it, it wouldn't have made mm. a jot of difference to my enjoyment of the film. It's not like, oh, wow, that's really changed my entire view of the story. For the, for the other side of the coin, I am exactly in disagreement with you. I would have been super miffed. Really? Yeah, I was really, really, really looking forward to that film. And that's why if I'd seen the review, I'd have gone, oh, look at that, look at that, ooh, ah, ooh, oh. Mm. Mm. And I think it depends on how much you have set your stock on, well, I'm not going to watch it in the first weekend. This is what I used to do. I won't watch it in the first weekend because it's going to be too busy. There's too many people there. I just I just want to find a nice spot on a Sunday and it's just going to be me and whoever else I drag along. And that's sometimes what I used to do. So I used to wait three or four weeks and then watch the movie I was looking forward to. And then it was my, I, I kind of, it's, you know, making a from my own back because then I'd have to spend three weeks not talking <laughs> to anyone but, yeah that's a that's a problem but that is what people do that's maybe partially why I look up spoilers for TV shows so I can actually join in the conversation with people <laughs> about stuff uh, instead of waiting weeks to uh, to talk about uh, Breaking Bad or whatever it was that, mm. I, that, I, that I would do that for but also Breaking Bad for me and this is a personal thing uh, th- it was so tense towards the end I mean, so unbelievably tense that it was a, a release file for me that I would get up in the morning and I would go, okay, what happened last night's episode? Oh, okay, now I've read about it. Okay, now I can watch it and I'm, I'm less tense you, than I would be. I know it's weird. I know, I know, human being. I know I'm terrible. an appalling human being. I know, I know. <laughs> I have a problem. I need help. I need yeah. to go and seek someone. Um, but also, I guess this is about twists as well. I mean, I didn't read your... Lego movie review. I should just quickly stress, the one online does not have any spoilers in Doesn't it. Doesn't have any spoilers in it, but... Um, you know, I, I don't know if you'd gone into that movie knowing there was a, a twist per se. Would that have ruined your? Because you're always trying to second guess the twist, aren't you? I mean, um, we had Reese Shearsmith and Steve Pemberton in uh, yesterday for a podcast interview, which will go in next week's episode uh, about Inside Number Nine. Very twisty series, very very twisty series. And and uh, I mentioned this to Reese Shearsmith, who took exception because he didn't like being the show being painted as being predicated on his twists. That's fair enough, I guess, because I think once you realise that something has twists or is mm-hmm. based on twists, then you do have that thing where if you're watching Sixth Sense, you're trying to guess what the twist is or No yeah. Way Out. Or- I was just going to say, I mean, I agree. I wouldn't read Ollie's review as a matter of principle because Ollie wrote it. <laughs> fair. Yeah. But I wouldn't read your Lego review before I saw the film because I'd want to read it after I saw mm. the film because yeah. I think that's the way, for me, that's the way to do it. But what I meant was if somebody would have come up to me and went, at the end of the Lego movie, mm, turns out to have been mm, all along kind of thing. I don't think that would have bothered me in the slightest watching the movie. That's just me personally. Yeah, but sure, everyone sure. feels differently. And the fact that we're not actually talking about it now implies that we respect mm. our listeners. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, uh, and honestly, ourselves. It, it works both ways. I mean, I, I kind of look up TV spoilers, but um, I don't look up spoilers for the end, like You're albums. But What's the end of this song? But for films, I go completely the opposite direction. For films, I will run from, from spoilers. Uh, for example, LA Confidential, I can actually actively remember 
not reading a single thing about that movie because I was so excited about it. And I had a feeling it was going to be twisty and turny mm. and people were going to, you know. And so I went into that not knowing a single thing about it and, and so I consequently loved it. It's interesting how how some people have come to define what a spoiler is. Because I think a spoiler is something that will genuinely ruin your experience of that movie. So if you were, say, like if you were seeing The Sixth Sense, if you knew what happened at the end, that's going to spoil the rest of that movie for you. Yeah. But some people have taken it to mean just anything that happens in well, anything we, we need a new word basically yeah for the non-fatal spoiler for instance look, if you're watching LA Confidential and you knew that the thing happened in the middle of the movie that's unexpected that would I think for me be a massive spoiler that would damage your enjoyment of the movie oh yeah, yeah but yeah, what happens yeah. at the end of the Lego movie for me isn't doesn't do that because it's still fun and it doesn't really affect the way I feel about the movie I love that we're so sensitive to spoilers we're worried about spoiling a film from the mid 90s yeah 1997 <laughs> but at the same time I'm, I'm kind of going to slightly spoil it now because it's interesting how spoilers then pass into into the culture mm. because um, Rollo Tomasi which is a major part of Ali Confidential I won't say how or why but that's now almost like it's something that you say now it's something that's in popular culture as is Kaiser Soze mm. um, as is so and so is a ghost. I'm not saying which film that's you know, you know that's that's from. But you know th- these things do quickly pass into the zeitgeist. Um, right, have we, have we spoiled that conversation? I think we have. Let's move on. And uh, a question from email now from James Dean, not the James Dean. That would be really weird and freaky. Uh, if you could choose any alien species from a film or animated film to live among us for real, what species would it be? James Dean would pick the Ewoks, uh, just to watch them cause havoc and annoy the hell out of people. They're fishes, little buggers. Honestly, the Ewoks. If the Ewoks came down here, they would. Take over the plant within days. I, I would go for the um, galaxy's finest president, your favourite Beetlejuicean. The best bang since the big one. The hoopiest fruit you've ever known. Zaphod Beeblebrox from Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, as mm-hmm. played by Sam Rockwell. I think one of the best things of that film, which has mixed reviews from, from everyone. I like it. Diehard fans to uh, total newcomers. But he's fantastic in it, especially his dancing on that clifftop. Uh, he's the inventor of the pan-galactic gargle blaster and is a huge <laughs> amount of fun that hits you on the head like a gold brick uh, absolutely love him in that and I would love to be uh, at least a friend of his or know someone who was a friend of his so I could be the friend of that person he's not really a species yeah. though is he yeah I feel like you've written fanfic about yeah. that that he, was really in depth he's an alien is... species the question's a species not, not um, which alien I mean he is a species oh so you want his entire species to that's correct down. yes okay. uh, all of his type I would like anyone with two heads yeah happy with that absolutely sounds fun Ollie uh, not many, because most of them eat people. This is true. Um, do the aliens from Toy Story count as an alien species? Because, <laughs> I mean, in the film they're alive and they are aliens. Yes, they do. Yeah. And, you know, they would cause no trouble. They're quite cute. And mm. if, you, worst case, you send them to charity shop. The claw! Sounds good to me. Yeah. Tharks, because I really like saying the word Jeddak a lot. <laughs> <laughs> but they're re- they'd, be a bit, they'd be a bit of a bastard on the northern line, wouldn't they? Because they're kind of really gangly. Mm and they get in the way how cool would it be to have your recycling collected by Jawas terrible they just go through everything that's true yeah. ruin everything but they take it away with them wouldn't they they'd steal they'd, yeah. all of my robots exactly your DVD player would be out the door <laughs> before you knew it that's a good point but they'd be retrained come on <laughs> yeah for me it's got to be um, Wookiees but not too many because you know there'd be loads of them knocking around they'd make great carpets yeah when it rains it'd be a horrible smell wouldn't <clears> it <throat> well, I like the smell of wet dog you can actually have a Wookiee in the um, London Marathon a la Four Lions could let the police sort that one out yeah uh, is a honey monster an alien <laughs> no he's just a monster yeah where does he come from I don't know where the monsters come from under the bed 
a definitive answer there. Uh, okay, thanks for your questions. Uh, if you want to get in touch with us, you can do so via Twitter. We're at Empire Magazine. You can use the hashtag Empire Podcast, or chances are we won't see it. Um, that's assuming, of course, the website's working. Uh, you can also uh, Facebook us, where we're Empire Magazine. And you can email us, podcast at empireonline.com. Okay, our first guest this week is a young British actor who first made his mark in Shane Meadows' brilliant This Is England. Hollywood has subsequently taken notice he was seen earlier this month in 300 Rise of an Empire and has been cast as a lead in Angelina Jolie's Unbroken, but it's back to Brit Grit this week in David McKenzie's prison drama Start Up. I'm talking, of course, about Jack O'Connell, and Phil went along to speak to him recently about all manner of things, not annoyingly, the new Joe Cornish movie Section 6, which was announced this week. Nevertheless, enjoy. Mm. Oh. Mm. Forget the tune. That's good. No, no. That was it. I think you nailed it. Thank you. Um, Jack O'Connor, welcome to the Empire Podcast. It's a pleasure to have you here. You just did your sound check using Matthew McConaughey's, <laughs> yeah. which I gather was in The Wolf of Wall Street. He has this little kind of like warm up. Yeah, yeah, Do yeah. you have a warm up when you're doing your scenes? Do I you have I'd... like a sort of a similar kind of yeah. percussion y chest beating? No, no, no. In fact, I, I envy his. His puts mine to shame. Sometimes a shadow box. Do you? Yeah. I, in fact, it was a trait that I developed in the Royal Court, 2007. Oh, yeah? I thought, I mean, very restricted in terms of my education in, in, in this particular field. Yeah. But it seems to do the trick for me anyway. Just get the blood going, I guess. Yeah. Because there's a lot of repetition involved in the job we do, and sometimes the energy levels can dip. So, yeah, I just punched the fuck out of the air for a bit. <laughs> like, yeah. Well, we're here to talk running. about... Um, Startup, obviously, okay. which is a gut-punchingly awesome piece of work from all concerned, really. It's a, one of those films you sort of come out reeling from. But I wanted to ask you about some of the prison slang, because you play a character who's starred up, who's, who's a young offender, who's so violent, he's been kind of pushed up into adult prison. Mm. So have you, have you built any of the slang that you learned in the film into conversations? Do you still use some <laughs> of this stuff? Because <laughs> we actually got sent a, um, a glossary of terms. Really? Yeah. Who sent you that? Um, I think that was sent by the publicist. They, t- terms like... We should release that, Double bubble. Double bubble, yeah. Double, well, can you explain what that is? means like a temporary loan in return for twice the original item. Right. Double bubble. Sounds so, different in my accent, doesn't it? <laughs> Double bubble. <laughs> um It's a heck of a performance. Thank you, mate. Tell me your first kind of feelings for the role because, you know, you've done a lot of a lot of parts, Eden Lake, Harry Brown, stuff that's that's kind of showcased your physicality and, and the sense of threat that you kind of convey really well. But there's much more to this character, isn't there? Well, yeah. I mean, because obviously he's, he's leading the film and it's very much Eric's story, what appealed to me originally on, on paper form was a real complexity to him and a maturity too and he's survived however long in the young offenders version of that environment and I wanted him to already feel equipped yeah. with being you know promoted into daddy nick as it were so I mean I mean it, there was there, there's plenty of 2D cliche examples of Eric and I was very well overly aware to to not venture into any anything too obvious like, it was more interesting for me for him to have this maturity and, and have this capability to him yeah well there is that that sense of kind of amusement almost in the stuff that's going on around him and some f- I use the word funny advisedly but funny challenging stuff like an early scene where he gets out of a difficult situation with some of the prison some of the screws by biting the penis mm-hmm. of 
Johnson. He's actually called Johnson, isn't he? So yeah. It's Johnson's Johnson. <laughs> Is that a deliberate joke? I think that was Jonathan's brainchild, yeah, the writer. Yeah, that was one of his. Can I just clarify, that was actually a squash ball. Like, the, mo- the, the element of movie magic in that circumstance. But, I mean, like, it's some, some standoff, you know, and, you know, require, requires a certain nous. Yeah. I... One of my favourite actors, Ben Mendelsohn, is someone that people don't really talk about that much, um, as much as they should. He's fantastic, and he plays your dad. You mentioned it's the daddy Nick in, like, in sort of literal sense as well, obviously, because the film's about you and your dad. Did you were you kept apart from each other because obviously the two characters haven't seen that much of each other in their lives, or did you get a chance to sort of bond father and son away from the set? Yeah, I mean, we rehearsed, and I remember that being quite a conscious factor prior to shooting that we wouldn't necessarily hang out too much and get familiar with each other uh, there was one scene in particular actually right at the end where um, you know Ben he kept himself totally separate to me really yeah 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 which was fascinating for me to try and you know to, to witness as a youngster coming up and, and just you know learning did you follow him around just to annoy him <laughs> no that would be unprofessional and it might it, it, it would compromise I reckon it would have yeah, I wouldn't want to compromise him. I mean, he's a pretty fiery character as well. Is he? Potentially, I guess. Aren't we all, though? Yeah. Okay. We're all, all well. sort of lunatics that they put in front of cameras and, you know, forced to perform. You have worked with some great people, and, and looking back, sort of your early days acting, it must have been amazing to work with Shane Meadows, who comes from, like yourself, comes from Derbyshire on This Is England. Yeah. Um, you couldn't, sadly, be in the This Is England TV spin off, This mm. Is England 85, and, and the following ones. Which hurt. Yeah, I can imagine it did, because there's a real tight camaraderie on that, yeah. which I imagine you felt sort of gutted not to be a part of. But I mm-hmm. wondered if you, how your character, how Pukey is doing now. Yeah, I mean, he's, he's all right. Look, I'll, I'll let you into something. They're going to do This Is England 1990, and um, I've got a slight inkling. I'm led to believe that, that Pukey still exists. And uh, the storylines that I've been discussing, they, they, seem, they seem quite uh, chunky enough anyway, very very fortuitous position to you know where I started with Shane he gave me my first taste yeah. of it didn't he so and that put me on set with Stephen Graham yeah and I got to watch him from ringside got to see how or where he puts himself in order to portray characters such as Combo that served me well throughout my whole career so if I can get on, on back on set with them them who I've just mentioned again I mean I'm I'm, I'm there as soon as you say so amazing but I mean, look, I, I'm, I'm not speaking in definite terms, but the conversations I've been had. There might be a razzing initiation ceremony for your return, though. Have you missed, like, what, two? Is it two, three seasons? You've got some imagination, you know. <laughs> do, you, do you write? You should write. <laughs> uh, well, that's amazing. We'd love to see you back. I know, you know, not only is it a tight-knit um, family of, of, in the show and the film, but also the fan base is, is very... You know, passionate about those characters, so I think people will feel pretty strongly about. Well, that. look, when I'm amongst them, they still call me Pukey. Do they? I think I'll always be regarded as Pukey to them, with or with her, without her. Yeah, <laughs> well. Pukes. He's abbreviated it to Pukes. Yeah. Now, I was going to ask you how the unbroken Angelina Jolie casting came about, but we know that she's a massive fan of the Bill. <laughs> she would have seen you in that, no doubt. Is that a fact? Yeah. Well, no, I'm guessing. I'm oh. assuming. Your imagination <laughs> that's again. again that's my imagination. That must have been an amazing experience because this. I mean, you are obviously you know a name on a lot of people's lips at the moment with these films. Obviously, seventy one as well is coming out. Start up, and and now sort of bigger Hollywood fodder as well. What was the sort of 
the, the one major sort of difference, apart from obviously the scale and the money involved, for you as an actor? Oh, diff- in terms of differences, I, I, I think scale is, is probably, you're probably right there in that uh, to see everything sort of enlarged and these these really convincing sets, to see them recreate, you know, that, that period, the early 1900s or late early 1900s, if that makes sense. And to see that, what uh, to see everything going in front of camera, totally uncompromised, and working with absolute experts across the board. Yeah, you had Roger Deakins obviously shooting you. Which uh, is only only ten times nominated <laughs> for an Oscar. So I mean, he he's, hasn't, he's, won, he hasn't won, so he's gunning for it, which probably suits us better, you know. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah he's trying hard on this one. <laughs> well, I mean, he's in focus. And 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 himself, he he's just never not focused. Yeah. I think. I think I, I, th- I think he breaks for lunch for about a t- ten minutes. I don't think he eats. Yeah, and he's just yeah, he's, he's just there. Like I mean, uh, inspiring wouldn't really wouldn't really cover it, you know, because that's that's a superhuman feat. Yeah, to not be distracted. I mean, I wish I didn't have so much ADD. <laughs> well, I certainly feel like I do compared stood next to a fella like him because mm. from start to finish, every day, he's. Uh, he's you know he's a professional Mm. he's a fisherman Jack I think maybe that's where he gets his zen focus from is he? yeah it's not your imagination again this is it? no this is 100% fact fact, verifiable fact really? yeah ask any fish (laughs) (laughs) Um, I'm assuming Angelina Jolie didn't call didn't call you pukey Um, it must have been pretty amazing I mean she is pretty much the most famous person in the world Um, an actress turned director successful in both obviously and uh from your point of view, did she give you any advice as someone? Because she's been where you are now and given opportunities that I'm sure you're getting too. Did she give you any advice about how to handle all that stuff? Yeah. I mean, without um, peppering say? me, you <laughs> yeah. know, without uh, intruding, you know, she, I mean, she's definitely not trying to steer, you know. She, and I, I think she knows the difference between the example that she set and and how that then resonates in terms of, how I choose to take her advice right you know she led by example too so even if she was totally mute to me I would have I would have learned a lot of lessons well you have done some possibly done some uh, testing for a superhero movie Fantastic Four potentially no that never happened no it hasn't happened obviously I, honestly I swear to god oh, I would that not, hasn't happened I would not bullshit you where right? did that rumour come from then it was it was completely fake I, I suspect a bit of foul play because I, I, I remember meeting yeah. for it under no certain terms, I just sat there, had a chin wag, mm. and then left there, you know? Yeah. And the next thing I know, I'm seeing my um, name attached to it. So I'd like to clarify that here and now. Yeah. Uh, I, doubt, I doubt that's going to go ahead. Are you a fan of all of, of the sort of comic book world? I haven't seen a single superhero film. No. Um, and uh, I, I think there's one or two that I, reg- I regret not seeing, namely Batman. Yeah. Oh, that sounded awesome, you know. Ben Mendelsohn was in it. <clears throat> yeah, exactly. He'd have been disappointed. <clears throat> well, you know, when we were shooting with each other, I, I made a decision to not watch any of his work. Oh, okay. Yeah, just so it was a bit more organic. Yeah. But I, I finished finished working with him this time last year, so I don't think I can use that as an excuse anymore. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> but you know, I honestly haven't been to see a single... Them films don't really resonate with me, bud. Yeah. You know, there's a lot happening, and it's very stimulating to the eye, but... You know, they don't move me in the same way that a film like The Wind That Shakes a Barley, for example, would move me. Why yeah. don't we say that if Ken Loach signs up to direct Avengers 3, you might be interested? I'm sure he's just retired. Oh, he's talking about that was going to be his last film? 
Yeah. His current project. Yeah, I mean, I don't want to make, make his mind up for him, but no, I mean, I, I, I'd, yeah, I'd be very flattered. I, I'd take the hit, basically, yeah, to work with him. I've always set out to work with him. Right. Actually, yeah, as a youngster. Um, I had a meeting with him when I was about 14, and I got my hopes so high. I think it might have influenced his decision quite quite negatively. I was a bit of a fangirl. That's hard to avoid, though, sometimes, isn't it, in those situations? Yeah, with some, with some people, it surprises you, creeps up on you, because I feel like I hold it together when I met Angie. Really? Mm. What was your first meeting with Angie? It was Angelina, in- sorry. <laughs> 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 um, that, was in, uh, that was in a hotel down in London, Dorchester. Um, she responded to one of my self-tapings that I did. Like, the like, word was put out by the company that this role was going... And I, I put myself on tape for it. And yeah, thankfully, I was met with a good response. Met her. And it, it, like I say, I hold it together. But I couldn't manage to do the same when I met Ken Loach when I was 14. But yeah, but I mean, I'd, I'd say uh, Angelina's definitely more attractive in that sense than Ken Loach. It's funny how that didn't become a factor. I'm a bit concerned. <laughs> I'm going to move on for that. I'm, I'm going to wrap up reasonably soon. But okay. I, I wanted to just tackle finally one of your last. One of your other big passions, which is Derby County. Yes. Um, I don't know how many of our listeners are Derby County fans, but I'm sure there's a few out there. Hopefully. I wondered um, if you were going to play, because you weren't in the Dam United, which was obviously featured Derby County quite strongly. Mm-hmm. Um, if they make a se- sequel, I guess you'd be interested. Is Which Derby County player would you want to play in a movie? Ah, uh, funny. Igor Stimak. Really? He's an outright legend, isn't he? Right. But yeah. I don't think I got the credentials, because he's a superhuman. He's a, you don't play superheroes? <laughs> no, no, superhuman is a distinction. He, um, yeah, I think I think he's my all-time hero. But yeah, you got me on the spot now because I reckon there's several. Do you know I was there last night, supporting away at Hillsborough. Oh yeah, where we won one one nil. Wow. Yeah, uh, Bramford, Bamford, Bramford ended up getting the goal. Champion. So look out for you playing a grizzled Croatian. <laughs> and a grizzled war veteran in Unbroken and, and in the meantime obviously Start Up is going to be out on I think March the 21st um, go see it thank you very much for talking to yeah, us Jack cheers mate Appreciate all the best it. ok so that was Jack O'Connell time now for lovely lovely movie news what have we got what's happened this week quite a lot of little things yeah. slash big things have happened I mean just to get give a little round up Mark Webb the director of Amazing Spider-Man 1 Amazing Spider-Man 2 and Amazing Spider-Man 3 will not be directing Amazing Spider-Man 4 I hope my voice indicated how excited I am about that but he <laughs> won't be uh, directing Amazing Spider-Man 4 because of course there'll be a reboot no because <laughs> there will be uh, new spin-off movies with the likes of Venom and other bad guys within that Spider-Man universe so he will not be directing Amazing Spider-Man 4 he has decided that he's going to move on to other things which is fine Wolverine 2 will be shot after Days of Future Past this was a, one of those lovely news stories where you see the director James Mangold he's on Twitter someone asks him just a punter asks him a question so when will we see Wolverine 2 uh, I'm presuming they're from wherever that person was from and he responds going well the aim currently is to shoot it after Days of Future Past totally off the grid totally no press release and so that was picked up and people are doing things with that online there postulating and all that kind of good stuff personally not for me but yeah there is that also Colin Trevorrow has been talking about Jurassic World and uh, there's a great interview up uh, from IGN I must I must give them kudos for grabbing that one just some general stuff but it's interesting you should go check it out uh, if you're interested in what's to become with Colin Trevorrow's forkwell uh, so any thoughts on those three things no not really yeah the Mark Webb thing's interesting I guess he doesn't want to get dragged down into Spider-Man it's, it's you know, 
I don't, it's going to be interesting to see how, how well The Amazing Spider-Man 2 does, given that they've announced all these spin-off movies and parts 3, 4, maybe even 5 and 6 moving on or be a Spider-Man movie every single year, regardless of whether it actually has Spider-Man in it mm. or not. I, I do worry. I, I do sometimes wonder about the comic book movie bubble bursting. I think Marvel are too smart to let it happen for their movies, but I do wonder about the Spider-Man uh, situation. They might not even. I mean, they might not get to the Spider-Man four. What if the S- number three doesn't do that well? Sony, as a studio, has been very unlucky with its big blockbuster movies of late. After Earth was meant to be a very big film, and so was White House Down. Both did not succeed, and they were both about a hundred million each. So they have, I feel, put a lot of their eggs into the Spidey basket. Mm. Terrible turn of phrase, but <laughs> they, basket. there you go. Uh, and I think if it doesn't work out for them, they are going to be a very unhappy group of executives. It probably will, I won't. It? I mean, it I can't remember will. exactly what the 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 first one, first in the new iteration of Spider-Man movies, made, but it was a lot of money. It was about seven hundred million, yeah, wasn't it? it? Was, yeah, yeah. So that's that's mm. a lot of money, and that's yeah, that's just box office. That's before everything else. So, mm. I mean, it's. It's most likely that's going to carry on making money. And from the Mark Webb thing, I mean, this is only, The Amazing Spider-Man was only his second movie. Yeah, true. You can understand why someone after three movies mm. is going to want to go and do something else. I mean, it's almost that's pretty anyone. Ex- it's an who, exhausting process. Exactly. Especially yeah. given that it's a, there's a two-year gap between yeah. movies. Yeah. And as much as directors say, oh, I'd like, you know, maybe I'll do something small in between, it still takes time to yeah. shoot, yeah. edit a movie, and then you have to move on to the big behemoth and... A sense of anxiety from the publicity department, at least, where we have seen, I think, maybe eleven or twelve trailers in different forms for this film, and that that mm. that is the overload. I think the films will always, in my mind, be popular because that idea of a superpowered regular person. There's just something about it. It's yeah. hero land, right? But I think if you throw it down our throats a little too much, you can choke. I think yeah. you're right. I think there's a, there was a degree. I think they've got the latest trailer. I think is very good. I think before that, I think like giving away that uh, Harry Osborn was the Green Goblin. I thought that was a mistake. That I think they gave away too much. To it. I mean, there may be other things in there that don't know about. I can never say they've given away everything until you've actually seen the movie. But yeah, there has been. I think it's been oddly handled that they felt a certain degree of we've got to make everyone see this mm. and just let's just throw everything at the wall and they have sorry to interrupt sorry. they have sort of tried seemed like they tried just about every angle with their mm. promotional campaign and the last trailer just smack a little bit of the, the spider-man 3 conundrum of having too many bad guys but we don't you don't know that until you until you see the film like how that will work that could work and um yeah no i, I, I agree absolutely it could work it just it, it's so different from where the campaign started yeah. with more kind of circumspect character driven stuff and then we had a bit of uh, just pure spidey action yeah and now you're getting the villain you feel like every aspect of the every box has been ticked and there's not a lot left to the imagination and this this film and this franchise needs a bit of mystery i think i think the thing that hasn't come across yet and from when I did the interviews for the mag feature, there um, saw about twenty-five minutes of it, and it was really funny. And that I don't think has come across yet. And it's, and I think that seems to be that's. They, everyone was saying that's something they're really going for. They want this to be funny, and they want to play up the fact that Spider-Man is funny. And all the stuff that they showed us, and again, you can't judge a movie by seeing twenty-five hand-picked minutes. But there was a lot of really funny, good stuff in there. All the action was terrific. So it looked, from the little bit I've seen, it looks really good. Whether they've got over. The mood that is going to be of the film and I think if, if they did show that it was very funny I think that would pull a lot of people in who were a bit felt the first one was a bit you know downbeat yeah I, I, yeah I do wonder all the trailers so far have, have focused largely on things being smashed into other things mm. and I, I kind of feel that we've seen that quite mm. a lot and um, you know if they if there is another if, uh, another few strings to the 
the spider bow then it'd be great to see mm. them um I'm, you know i I'm, I'm looking forward to the film i, I quite i quite like the first movie um i think mark webb is very very talented um and yeah it's not a surprise he's not sticking around for four but but uh, how many directors have done four installments of a of a franchise from the off michael bay michael bay there you go uh, i'm going to talk about ghostbusters 3 a okay. highly contentious film that has been in development since before any people were born since before ghostbusters 2 exactly <laughs> um and with you know the recent sad death of harold ramis this seems to have strangely you know kick-started the movie again because Ivan Reitman has said now that he doesn't want to direct he said it's not you know those two films are very important and, and Howard Ramis was part of a big part of why they were so important to him so he doesn't want to direct anymore but he does want the film to happen and they're saying it will now shoot in early 2015 most likely uh, with Reitman producing and helping them choose a director and the word this morning uh, was that the most likely directors are Phil Lord and Chris Miller I hope I've just got those names the right way around. Yeah. Um, who I think would be a great choice because they are kind of the kings of taking the unpromising movie and making it amazing, as they've done with the Lego movie, 21 Jump Street, Clouded with a Chance of Meatballs. And if this movie is going to happen, which I don't think is necessarily a bad idea, I think it's a better idea if they don't keep the original crew. And by all accounts, Bill Murray is not coming back. In which case, is Dan Aykroyd still involved? Dan Aykroyd is, yes. Okay. So he's involved. Bill Murray might be in it, but the talk from uh, Ivan Reitman was that it's unlikely and they're okay. not really working with the sense of him definitely being in it. So this is a reboot of a sort or of the next generation, Ghostbusters 3, the next generation. Or is Ray Dance going to be in it like Spock in Star Trek? We don't know. Spock don't know any details, yeah. but it sounds like it's, go- it's going on to a new generation of Ghostbusters, which I think is okay. I think that's an idea that, that could work if it's done right. Chris Pratt. I want Chris Pratt and Anthony Mackie. And Channing Tatum. Uh, and Channing Tatum. That's who I want. Anthony Mackie would be great. And Emma Stone, I think. Oh, God, uh, yes. Absolutely see, right. All, I mean, you, all you need is the right personalities to make it work. I'll be honest, and we were talking about this before the podcast, and Ali, you have a different perspective on it, but I think suddenly you mentioned Lord and Miller and what they've done with 21 Jump Street in particular, and it, suddenly it seems exciting. Yeah. It seems like I can see that movie. That seems that makes sense. That would be funny. It'll have a lot of the spirit, the zany spirit of the first, yeah. the first mm-hmm. one. And sorry, Nick, the second one to a lesser extent. And, you know, with some good effects work and good casting, suddenly you're like, wow, that could be fun. Yeah. I mean, they've shown they're really good at the balance of comedy and action, which is what that needs. And they have a very kind of 80s movie sensibility anyway. So, yeah, yeah I'm, I'm, I'm in if they're, yeah. if they're on it. I, I guess so. I mean, as long as uh, they pay a respectful tribute to, to Egon. Fantastic, yeah. It, yeah, sounds great. I think we need a Brit in the cast. Who would be the Brit? Who would be the Brit Ghostbuster? Ooh. Hmm. Sam Claflin. Okay. Interesting. Inter- yeah. I would go for a- Leonard Rossiter. As a ghost. Yeah. Peter Molyneux. We might need Peter Mullen. Peter Mullen. Come here, we ghost. <clears throat> My story is exciting. I wish I had something that was an original uh, movie idea on my plate here because we've so far had what Wolverine to The Amazing Spider-Man 2, 3, 4, 5, 6 and 7 Ghostbusters reboot and there was one other that I missed out on. Well yeah we, we, I mean, I'll mention later but The Little Mermaid's being turned into a live action Oh hello movie. and Jurassic Park um, we mentioned and I have news of The Incredibles 2 Hooray which Hooray thanks Ollie um, which I think could be a lot of fun um, it says here that it's the one Pixar movie that audiences have truly demanded a sequel to but that's great, isn't it? I mean, everyone's wanted... for a reboot, it'll be Ratatouille. People have wanted a sequel to that since that one came out. That is that is generally that's the one that here. everyone asks about. Are you going to do a sequel? And Brad Bird's always said, no, nah, maybe at some point. Just don't want to do it just for the sake of it. Yes. And it, ter- it 
totally demands a sequel because it finishes mm. in a way that sets up a sequel. Yes, absolutely. And considering how much bigger the whole su- superhero kind of world, movie world has become since the first mm. movie, there's so much stuff that they can riff on and have fun with. And uh, yeah, I'm all in favour. I think Monsters university suffered a little bit because a lot of the genius of monsters inc was in the central conceit and the just central idea this doesn't necessarily have that problem because it's quite a simple idea mm. you know the the superheroes are sort of slightly gone to seed and what happens after they retire and all that kind of stuff um so there's so much more fun and enjoyment i think to be had with with that family and so many cool villains that yeah. they could have what would be and interesting is sorry no, and I also loved, I was going to say, I loved little bits like the kind of the Edith Head, Edna Mode. She was a lot of fun. Could bring her back. And the Bondy kind of, the Bondy kind of spy angle. They could maybe throw in a slightly different genre riff. That, that, in, there's so many things they can do. I'm I think excited. that's too similar to Cars 2. It'll be interesting to see how they treat... Because um... Cars 2 was a James Bond riff. No, but uh, The Incredibles was obviously a bit of a James Bond riff, wasn't it? But I just feel like Pixar, you talk about what Brad Bird was saying, is, oh, we'll take time. I think the only reason why they'll be doing this, this is me holding the flame here, they must have an idea which is different from what Pixar have done before. In my head, mm. that has to be why they got, hey, let's do it underwater or something better. Yeah, no, I mean, absolutely, 100%. Underwater. That idea was done, and it was done again, yeah. um, as you mentioned, and it was also done a little bit in Despicable Me, yeah, yeah, as yeah. well. Despicable Me, I think, owned, owes an awful lot to The Incredibles in oh, terms of time. its idea. So um, they do—they're going to have to go off in new territory. But I guess what I'm saying is that there are an awful lot. There's an awful lot. I can see a lot of daylight for the story. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Um, so this could really work. Less excitingly, by probably quite <laughs> a long way, <laughs> is news of a third Cars movie. And I guess we have to temper the fact that the idea of a third Cars movie makes me want to butt my head against the wall um, a lot. But at the same time, it's super lucrative for Pixar stroke Disney and it's spawned marketing and it's spawned all kinds of other things. Yeah. And it will continue to spawn like some kind of devil frog. It's interesting. It's the one that makes them... I mean, they all make them a lot of money, but it makes them so much money they keep going. And the one that keeps fueling the thing of mm. people say... people. People who think that Pixar are running out of ideas, that fuels what they say, which I don't agree with at all. I think they've shown they've got plenty, but I mean, who wants to see Cars 3? Who well, wants to see kids Cars 2? Yeah. And I guess that's the thing of the minions, it's, like that it's their minions. It's such a cash cow, and they've just hit a sweet spot with that certain demographic, and it, it doesn't have any of the stuff that we love about Pixar. I don't think that's true. I don't know of any, any, kid, any kids that I'm related to or friends' kids who are really massive fans of Cars, of my, the my, Cars series. My nephew, well, he's probably... I've grown it now, but he was. Yeah, he okay. was. He was obsessed with Lightning McQueen. He's Rangers. now twenty-seven. I, yeah, he's, yeah. Uh, I quite liked uh, the first cars. I didn't much like the second cars. Maybe they're going to get it right this time. And it's just an idea. I don't find particularly interesting. So I don't. You know, yeah. There's no. There's no. For me personally, there's no right because I don't think the idea of cars being alive is a very no. Well, it, rich it, it, it raises idea. a lot of disturbing questions because it's a world completely devoid of humans. Yeah. So you know, like, who built the cars? Yeah. Where, where did their personalities come from? Is it Earth? Is it an alternative Earth? What's going on? I would love to have, have they... them peel back the curtain and then you see a bunch of like slave-like humans yeah. just like toiling away <laughs> in, a, in a factory, putting together cars, and then it's uncovering this huge mystery. 
Yeah. That's an incredibly dark idea. I like it for, what, for the third film. Yeah, David Lynch too. Uh, if you look at the uh, if you look at Cars and Cars Two as as weird sequels to Stephen King's Maximum Overdrive, where <laughs> all the trucks and cars come alive and try and kill humanity. So we're talking about like interesting. a hard R Cars. A hard R, yeah, putting the hard R in Cars. Um, there are a couple of other uh, tidbits. I don't usually have movie news stories, but I'm going to have a couple this time. So throw them out there for you guys to discuss. George R R Martin, uh, the author of Game of Thrones has said at a premiere of the uh, the first episode of the fourth season, which is just about to start, that he thinks it's going to end, he wants it to end on the big screen. He wants it to end with a big budget $100 million movie uh, because, quote, those dragons get real big, you know. Ooh. Into it. Totally into it. Yeah. Yeah, good idea. Yeah, because, I mean, the series is absolutely brilliant, but um, I don't think it would suffer from having a bigger budget and a bigger screen. So, yeah, why the hell not? Yeah. The, his only problem is, I mean, I know he's been talking about this as well, that... The it's very likely that he's going to get caught up now mm. by the, by the TV show, and apparently he's told the the showrunners what happens, so they can conceivably go past him, but that might really ruin things for so, people who are reading the books. This fourth season, where, where is it getting up to in terms of the books? And is it is it literally a season per book, or is it? Yes, but they may start. No, they, they split this mm. current book uh, into two. So yes. the current season they're on is in is uh, is based on just one book uh, is based on half of the book that the previous season was also on but it's, it's interesting it could be uh, it could be huge it's, it's certainly uh, the way a lot of TV shows are going uh, these days and uh of Doug Lyman is going to direct uh, Splinter Cell an adaptation of Tom Clancy's uh, Splinter Cell with uh, Tom Hardy to star sign me up well up for that yep uh, okay, that's it for movie news. Uh, our second guest is one of our favourite actors, has been ever since he was part of the Goonies back in 1985. Uh, Josh Brolin spent a little while in the wilderness of humdrum supporting roles after that, but has had a leading man renaissance over the last few years with the likes of No Country for Old Men, Men in Black 3, I Know I Know, but he was awesome in it, and uh, W, and now Jason Reitman's period love story, Labour Day, in which he stars alongside Kate Winslet. Nick Dissemlian and Ali went along to speak to Mr Brolin when he came into London recently. Enjoy. We had one of our colleagues, uh, Ian Freer, he came in earlier this morning and talked to you, and he mentioned that you mentioned... Empire. Empire, that's right. 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 He mentioned that you mentioned that you were watching Breaking Bad last night. In the middle of the night. In the middle of the, the night. The finale. Yeah. How are you feeling now? I, it dis- no, not disappointed. Um, let down because there's no... I've had this massive romance, you know, with Breaking Bad, and now the romance is over. Like, it will never be what it was before the middle of last night. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, I do. So, yeah. Um, I, <laughs> it sounds funny. It sounds stupid. But it's actually true. Um, I thought the finale was really good. But I've never, I've never been a TV guy. I, you know, I watched Friends like four times. <laughs> you know, I watched Seinfeld, I think, three times. And I've missed out on a lot of really good TV. But this thing, I know you don't want to talk about this the whole time. It blew my mind. It blew my mind. Vince Gilligan is a freaking genius. Is it true that you were thinking about doing some kind of reading for Breaking Bad? Oh, no, I wasn't thinking about it. Jason asked me to do... Jason does these kind of... Uh, he, he picks frames yeah. from movies or series. He erases the actors, and then he has the actors come up on stage and read them. And in the background, you'll have whatever that you know background essentially was. So Shampoo, he did a reading of Shampoo that was great. He did, uh, so he did Breaking Bad, the pilot, Mm -hmm. and I had to pull out at the last second because I was traveling, and then I ended up doing uh, Boogie Nights in Uh. uh, in Toronto, 
And I was on Paul Thomas Anderson's set for Inherent Vice when he asked me if I wanted to do it. And then he says, yeah, but I need to get, I need to find out how to get to write, you know, get the okay from Paul. And I said, hold on a second, <laughs> Paul, is it okay if we do this? And Paul's like, yeah, sure. Um, and we had a lot of fun doing it. It was great. Which character were you, were you going to play? The, uh, the Burnt Reynolds character. Oh, Brian Cranston's, yeah. Cranston's. yeah. Amazing. I did, I did think White. of uh, Walter White when we see you first in this film, Labor Day, because you had this great big goatee uh-huh. and just walk in like yeah. some kind of force of nature. Yeah. My question for you is, because you play this kind of very masculine man in this film, and you had these two montages where you kind of fix a lot of stuff. Mm-hmm. We're talking damp, we're talking dry rot, under a car, mm-hmm. garage doors, the lot. How much of that were you thinking, you know, a lot of acting is doing things that I wouldn't normally be able to do. Mm. But was, was there a point when you were grouting a bath when you went, I couldn't do this. But I could do that. You could. I absolutely could. You could do all the stuff you were showing. Yeah, but if you think about other than doing that, there wasn't really like, what else did I do? I took a tire off and put it on. Not too difficult. <laughs> what did I, I put some rocks in the back and, you know, it, yeah, I could do what the, what the movie's montage was. But, you know, anything beyond that, probably not so much. Have a lot of your friends started calling you up and asking you to come around? And- no, they just laugh. They just laugh. They go, yeah, you know, thank God you're an actor, dude, because people have a great perception of you as that guy and not who you really, you know, I would be in writing or something or, you know. You also have a very impressive cooking sequence, which made me very hungry, where you make a peach pie. I keep hearing that. And it's funny because it's the first reaction that I've gotten like that. People are like, I'm salivating during the thing. I was like, wow, I thought it was more sexual. Beautifully shot. Yeah, yeah. It is a little bit. I, a little bit. Much more sexual and a lot more tense. Like kind of, you, you were worried what might happen rather than uh, going, right. I'm, I'm going to eat that pie. I'm going <laughs> to no, I did. I learned how to make a pie. And I, was, I thought he was going to do that in one take. So it was m- really my fear that I wasn't going to be able to pull off what I needed to pull off. So I made a pie a day for three months. Whoa. Three months. A lot of the Teamsters in Massachusetts know my pies. They're, they're, in t- they're, they're entire families. And actually, when I stopped making pies so much, I continued a little bit. But after uh, that scene was over, I had a few angry Teamsters in Massachusetts, which is never a good thing. But I, I, sorry, I read that you uh, thought about being a chef at one point. Early, early stuff. on. I worked in a restaurant for about three years, a place in Santa Barbara called Rocky Galente's. And I did. I wanted to go and become a chef, but then I, this acting thing took over. I, I literally took a class in acting school, and that was it. I was done. What kind of stuff? No, I mean, look, Bobby Flay, you know, Bobby Flay and the food. I'm, I'm a food channel addict. I mean, <laughs> I, I just am. And Bobby Flay is like one of my great heroes. And then we were doing reshoots on Jonah Hex, and I had you know, all that horrible makeup on my face and I had bullet wounds on my chest and all that. And in the middle of a scene, my buddy, who I've known since I was four, came in during the middle of a scene and he screamed, Bobby Flay, outside now! And we really ran away from the, from the camera in the middle of the scene, took off outside, saw him getting in his Mercedes, I think, screamed, Bobby, Bobby, wait, no! Forgetting that I had all this crap on my face. And as I was telling him how amazing I thought he was, the lip was shaking, the hands were shaking. I think I felt really bad later. I got to talk to him later. You know. Are you a, this is a long shot, but are you a man versus food guy? A man for, yeah, yeah, yeah. You're you know? a bit of that. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. I just put it, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm realizing how much I'm talking about food. No. In- Diners, drive-ins, and dives. Love that. That's a good one. That Guy is a good Fiera. one. Guy Fieri. We need a Josh Brolin top five of your favorite food channel programs. No, I'm going through it as we go on. Yeah, <laughs> so I don't have to list them. I'm just remembering, you know. 
In No Country Old Man, there's uh, a scene where you have a dog leaps at you. It comes at you. Mm. But the way it's shot is obviously you can't throw or, or encourage a dog to leap at you. And in the film, you see that it's kind of a fake dog kind of on you. What was it like shooting that scene? Like when you're, What fake dog It's like a dog, a dog when the dog comes at you and you fire at it with your gun. Uh-huh. And the dog kind of lands on you and roll over. Uh-huh. How, how did you shoot that scene? I was fascinated how that I was done. I don't remember any fake dog. I, and I do remember being very scared, and I do remember his name being Scooby, and I remember having his chew toy in my pants so he would come after me. So, yeah, that was a real dog. That was done for out. real. Oh, you, yeah. you shot Scooby. I, sh- I didn't actually shoot <laughs> Scooby. And then I didn't realize that I shoot a dog in the next movie that I did, American Gangster, and then I started to get letters about how I shouldn't shoot dogs in films. <laughs> But them thinking I actually shot the dogs. <laughs> like, we hear you're a method actor and that you probably shot the dog. You uh, need to balance are, out by doing a Scooby-Doo movie. Man. I need you to balance play out the Scooby-Doo movie. That would be great. I'll play Reboot that. Betty. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, that was funny. No, I love Scooby. Scooby's still around, man. I love it. He's retired, it. by the way. Well, when, he, when you're in a Coen's Brother movie, it's... Uh, I think he hit the peak. Yeah, you're done. He hit a peak. He said, I'm done. That's it. I love there was a chew in your trousers. That's just... It's true. In yeah. Labor Day, there's a younger version of your character mm. who looks startlingly like you. That's strange. Tom. He's called Tom. I've got a surname here. Lipinski. Lipinski. Yeah. Lipinski. How did they find him? Was, were, you, were you shocked by the, by, by the appearance? I was because I had no involvement in that. I had an involvement in bringing Gatlin in, and there was a couple of other boys that were wonderful actors, and... Ended up, Jason ended up going with Gatlin, which I thought was a great choice. You know, when I when I showed up, it was uh, I'd come from Scotland after having drank a lot of beer and eaten a lot of scones, and Jason and I had kind of uh, planned on me being in really good shape for this movie, and I got you know to the set about three weeks before just to kind of get into it, and you know I was a little doughy. And then Jason said, well, you know, we had planned on you being in really good shape. And I was like, yeah, you know, I want to talk to you about that because, you know, I think the guy really isn't one of these like pumping iron in the middle of the yard. I think he's more sensitive. He probably spends a lot of time writing in his room. And I was totally like total bullshit. I was trying to justify the fact that I was addicted to my scones and didn't want to, you know, part with them. And I said, no, 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 no. But I was, yeah, I understand what you mean. But I don't think, you know, maybe he is a softer and more sensitive and it's not as menacing and maybe it's good. He's like, no, the guy's in good shape. So, and then finally he showed me, the point of this is he showed me a picture of Tom Lipinski, who he had told Josh is going to be in amazing shape like two months before. And the kid was in brilliant shape and looks facially exactly like me. So I had my argument was over. You were slipping right to the gym. (laughs) Sending some food to his trailer. So now you know how Tommy Lee Jones feels because you you were eerily good in Men in Black 3 as the the young TLJ, as no one calls him. TLJ, Um, I do. do You you listen to a whole bunch of audio tapes just listening to... Of Tommy's? Yeah. Uh Do you still have them? I do. I have them all, actually. I had to actually put them on an external hard drive because I had that many. It was slowing down my computer so much. <laughs> um, it, uh, yeah, but really I kept going back to... It's weird because Tommy's voice is Tommy's. It's such a strange cadence. It's very hard to follow because there's no real pattern. It just changes all the time. Mm-hmm. So you start... The more intimate you get with his voice pattern is you realize that Men in Black is actually a character that he came up with and is not just Tommy being Tommy. So I, I started resorting to that. So I watched that movie a lot. I mean, a lot, way too much, 40 it, times, 50 times. Something. Is this a party piece now? Do people ask you to do 
Tommy. No, I don't do I don't do that. You know, it's like maybe I'll like pull out a W once in a while just because it's so dumb. Um, but uh, no, people say like, do do the guy from the thingy thing. You know, go, no, That's a good so. line. I've got to remember that one. Do the do the guy from the thingy thing. <laughs> from the thingy thing. Obviously, you have history with Twenty One Jump Street back in the day. Mm. Were you asked to come on set for the film? The film was a huge success, mm. and now there's a sequel. I don't know whether they're calling it Twenty Two oh, Jump Street, but they're, but they're doing one, <laughs> 22, right? Twenty One and a Half. Twenty One and a Half. Uh, I didn't know that they were doing a, 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 a sequel. Um, yeah, it was that thing was how long ago was that? was 20 something years me and Johnny went to his apartment and we waited to find out which person because they had had somebody before and then they were recasting it and then it got down to Johnny and I and Johnny had just finished Platoon and I remember we were in his apartment and he was telling me about this you know Oliver Stone and what an amazing director and what an honor it was to work with him and all that kind of stuff and then he got the call and then he stuffed I remember a military what he used in Platoon his military duffel bag Mm -hmm. stuffed his clothes and ran out the door and that was it man all of life changed it, it, what's crazy is I feel like you deserve to have your own cameo after that all that whole story the whole history like because Johnny Depp was in 21 Jump Street the film yeah. you should be in 22 probably too late now because it's shooting but but you know you never know, know if you put it out there and campaign yeah give me another job <laughs> kickstarter make me another <laughs> kickstarter exactly that's the new thing as we approach the end we have a spectacularly stupid old boy question uh, if you had to obviously in the, in the original Korean film he eats not live octopus mm-hmm. you don't eat a live octopus in your version mm-hmm. if you had to eat a live animal what would you select if I had to be a live if you had animal to eat, oh if I had to eat one mm-hmm. would you call a snail a live animal I said I said he'd say snail I said slug. You go for slug. Slug. That's yeah, close enough. I predicted ant. Ant? It's kind of cheating. No, it is cheating. And, that, yeah. and that's not an ant. Yeah, it, it, it is cheating. That actually doesn't work because that's a peppering. All right. That's like what you would put on your snail. A snail really is man versus food. Yeah, truly. You know, no, no. It's a pe- that's a pepper. That's like a small jalapeno. Is that how you make your special food? You just mm-hmm. add a bit of ant as your secret ingredient. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Have you ever had cho- chocolate covered ants? No. Oh, those are good. Chocolate covered grasshoppers. I was just in Thailand. My son works in Bangkok. And uh, I had, for the first time, chocolate-covered ants, chocolate-covered grasshoppers. Pretty good. Listeners, it's been endorsed by Josh Brolin. Go eat your chocolate-covered grasshoppers. Absolutely. On that bombshell. If you really want to be somebody. (laughs) Josh, thanks so much. Cheers. That was fun. Thanks, guys. He was awesome in Men in Black 3, wasn't he? Yeah, he was. He was also really, really good in, in, obviously, The Goodies, which people forget about. The Goodies? Yeah. Was he in the goodies? He was in the goodies. Briefly, him and Graham Garden. <laughs> uh, actually, I think he's going to have a voice role in the new Banana Man movie, which we wanted to mention in the news story section, but there is so much this week. There has been a website set up saying, coming in 2015, Banana Man, the movie. If you don't remember Banana Man, it was a story for Eric Wimp, I think is his surname, uh, who has uh, the power to turn into a massive Bruce Campbell-jawed, blue and yellow, banana-shaped superhero. Uh, who ends up being foiled by a different number of fruit-based and vegetable-based bad guys. But yeah, it's wonderful that they're doing something with it. I was in an Oxfam the other day and I saw Banana Man on DVD and I was tempted to buy it, but it was too expensive. And I remembered with a sudden rush how much I loved that ridiculous, anarchic, silly, stupid show. Mm. I loved it. The, the, the intro sequence is amazing. When I Eric love- eats a banana. Mm-hmm. The theme tune, voiced by the goodies, obviously. And uh, it is a joke that has stayed with me forever. Uh, there's a there's a, a moment where he uh, Banana Man starts fighting someone I can't remember who, but it does that that 
comic book thing where they get into a sort of whirlwind of fists and mm-hmm. legs coming out of them. <laughs> and uh, at one point someone says to Banana Man, take that! And then Banana Man says, I don't want it! <laughs> and that has always stayed with me, that joke. So yeah, I'm fully on board with the Banana Man um, <laughs> movie. Um, okay, so we talk reviews now. Um, should we start with Labour Day? Oh, Jason Reitman's Labour Why Day? Not? Go on. Who wants to talk about this then? Ali does. I could give this a go. Go on then. Uh, Labour Day, I'm going to be reasonably general about it. Uh, it's a departure of a sort for Jason Reitman he has done the likes of Thank You For Smoking which I absolutely adore and also Up In The Air which I'm a big fan of this is a bit of a turn for him it's the story of a criminal uh, Josh Brolin as a criminal who'd have thought uh, on the run uh, and he it's on Labour Day which as you may or may not know as a Brit uh, if you are a Brit that is an extended holiday a weekend in <laughs> the US and normally people go back to school after that it's that period that last hurrah of summer somewhere in middle America it's based on a book of uh, of the same name and yes that's the reason why because in America labor has no you no you in labor anyway so he is a criminal on the run and he finds a place to hide the place to hide is the house of Kate Winslet uh, and her son her young son she is she's a single mother and she is essentially a having a constant nervous breakdown she doesn't like leaving the house she doesn't like doing anything she's in a very fragile state in comes this hunker 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 burning man Mm. who essentially shuts all the doors up puts a finger to her lips and pushes her against a wall and says i'm not here do as i say anyone knocks on the door i'm behind the other door you know totally huge power we've only got one door he has several. He walks in and he's very strong, very masculine, very charismatic. And it's the story of how instead of intimidating them to despair and wanting to run away to the police, this family, this small family, comes to feel love towards this man on the run. It's a Stockholm Syndrome the movie, is that mm. essentially what it is? That's pretty much what it is. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it is pretty much what it is. I'm not doing a great job of describing the basic setup. There is a scene that people will talk about, which is where they make pie a little bit weird it's meant to be you'll have heard us talking about it in the interview it's meant to be a a nice moment a gentle moment between the josh brolin and kate winslet character and the child but it turns into the slightly sexual kneading pressing dusting cooking bun in the oven type draw the own uh, lines between the dots uh, if you like and that is a scene that'll stick with you it's really quite strange i think the film is good I think it's quite worthy. I like it. Uh, It was overlooked by the Oscars, which is why it was delayed. It was originally going to be released quite a few months ago, so it could be uh, out in time for the whole buzz. Mm -hmm. We thought it might do well in the Oscars, and it it did not. I think it's a little bit too too quiet for the Oscars, wasn't it? I mean, it's a film that, like you say, it's very different to all his others, and there's nothing funny in it. It's not trying to be funny. But it's really strong on atmosphere, even though not a lot happens really in terms of plot. If It's got a really strong sense of place, and the characters, I think, are really strong. So if you like the characters, it's just a kind of a nice world to be enveloped by. Yeah. I didn't like this film as much as I think you guys did. In fact, I kind of didn't... I sort of disliked it a bit, actually. It has a very out-of-time sort of feel to it, which I do like. The idea it's got this kind of 50s Douglas Sirky thing where a lot of things are sort of unsaid mm-hmm. and it's a lot of mood and a lot of glances and, and it asks the audience to get inv- invested in these characters. I wasn't wildly smitten by the characters um, particularly. I thought they, they were all very well acted. Um, but I found the story itself kind of, especially towards the end, it got very ponderous, I found. And, and I, I also... <clears throat> 
it just didn't have any energy for me. I think one of the things I really love about Jason Reitman is his kind of sort of peppy, Zip. slightly zippy, kind of ironic. You know, if you don't like Juno, I get that completely. But at the same time, you know, you might find stuff in Thank You for Smoking that you love. It's he's just very funny. This I think doesn't really play to his strengths. It's a much straighter kind of uh, character drama, stroke romance, and. Um, it's got some interesting ideas about, you know, whether you can escape your past, whether this this mm. convict guy um, who comes in and just does a lot of housework and cooking. <laughs> it's kind of the lamb shank redemption in that sense. Oh. Uh, it's terrible. Can escape, you know, the past. You don't know whether he's guilty or not, I don't think, particularly at any point. I, would, um, I, would, I think you suspect he is. But I, I love him, Brolin, in it. I really bought him as it. Yeah. I can see why you don't necessarily like the characters, but I don't think... No, it wasn't that I didn't like the characters so much as I just didn't like the feel of the film particularly I found it really sort of pedestrian and uninvolving and I also found that scene with the with the with the cake with the pie apple peach 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 cobbler or something they Mm -hmm. make probably one of the most extraordinary things to sit through because it is genuinely an erotic scene involving a 12 year old boy and his mum and I haven't seen that in cinema before, and I think for good reason. I think it's more delicate than that. I don't think you'd flat out call it erotic. It's not like it not, certainly has it just, certainly has erotic overtones. That scene, I without think question, over under inner tones. Yeah, you're right. I mean, it's not. Uh, it, uh, it's subtler than just going, "Oh, hello, matron." No, they're all fully clothed, <laughs> but it's you can you. There's a lot going on which I I wasn't 100 percent comfortable with. Although it did look like a delicious peach cobbler at the end. Um, but I, I would say if you want to watch a film where Kate Winslet does a lot of or at least if you want to watch something where Kate Winslet does a lot of baking, I would go for Mildred Pierce. <laughs> personally. Take a lot longer. Personally. But I, I, we gave I, I it would, four stars. So I would love to watch the Netflix uh, list of Kate Winslet movies where she mm. cooks, and it's just these two currently, but they're, yeah. they're adding all the yeah. Well, here we go. And I would like to see these three on Saturday Kitchen remaking that Peach Cobbler. But after the watershed, if possible. I don't know if I could take the erotic tension in Saturday Kitchen. It's already, you know, sky high. Throw anything, in, anything James Martin. Throw does. in James Martin. <laughs> it's I, just... I should point out this movie has, and when you've watched it, you'll know what I mean, has a coda which yeah. is so extraordinary. I think that's all I need to say. Wait for the coda. The coda is something. Is it someone recruiting Kate Winslet for the, uh, the, the, the Bake Off universe? <laughs> yes. Is it Mary Berry? Does she appear? At- <laughs> Greg Wallace says she's got a lovely buttery biscuit base. <laughs> you gets in the back of its van and they drive off. You think you're the only baker in the universe? <laughs> she's like, no, that's my son. <laughs> and this was given, what, four stars in the mag? And I think that is correct, despite so, everything Phil says. So it's not a load of old peach cobblers then? Oh, dear. Don't look at me. Any, anything? Uh, Bueller? Uh, no? That's okay. no. All right. Uh, four stars in for Labor Day uh, let's move on now to start up we had Jack O'Connell on the podcast earlier on what do we make of the film itself though I made good things about this movie I really liked it one of the first problems you have with a prison drama is that it is just literally a minefield of, of movie cliches um, there's been so many some great ones you know Midnight Express A Prophet recently Alan Clark's done some crackers and that's a real reference point I think for David McKenzie the director of this movie it, I really liked it I mean it's driven by a powerhouse performance by Jack O'Connell he's really extraordinarily good in this film I thought he's a he's, he's it's called Starred Up because he is a young offender who is so vicious and unhinged that he has been starred up to adult prison um, it's like being sort of fast tracked into the first team oh good, um, good for him 
Yeah, well, I don't know if it's a massive achievement, but, you know, he comes in and he has to establish himself very quickly as nobody's pushover. So you see a lot of the mechanics of, like, what it's like to arrive in prison, what you're allowed to take with you, how you get, you know... In that sense, it reminded me a little bit of um, of um, hunger because you see kind of the nitty-gritty, the way he gets sort of hosed off, the stuff he's allowed to bring in. He comes into his cell and it's got a great opening because he comes into his cell with a bag of stuff and everything he's got is has a specific purpose none of those purposes are good it's not like he's got a copy of like jk rowling's you know first harry potter and uh and um you know some some playing cards he's got things that he's going to be using for as weapons in extraordinary ways you know he's got two bottles of baby oil that he puts up on a shelf he's got a toothbrush that he immediately converts into like an improvised shiv and then he knows how to hide it this man knows how to work the whole system even though he's basically you know a kid he's 17 so he's he's, an evil MacGyver he is basically a juvenile demented MacGyver his father in the big twist his very estranged father played by the really really excellent Ben Mendelsohn is also in prison in the same prison with him so this is basically kind of like a father and son drama at its heart that's kind of where the heart of the film lies the son is on a different trajectory from the dad it's also got a bit of a sort of social conscious in the sense that it was written by a guy that had worked in kind of rehabilitating these kind of um you know really really extremely disturbed and angry prisoners um so as an element of that where uh, rupert friend plays a kind of an interesting role he's kind of a sort of well well-educated kind of well-spoken home county style dude who goes in and works with these really really hardcore lags and somehow kind of tries to win them over despite the fact that everything in their nature makes them want to kind of throttle him uh, so there's there's different dynamics working some of them don't work as well as others you know the the, the, the guy that kind of runs the prison who's kind of corrupt is a little bit sort of two-dimensional but there's a lot of good stuff in this film and I think Jack O'Connell is really really terrific in it and um, we gave it four stars and I thought it was at least two thirds of a genuinely great film. Jack O'Connor's like really just feel like he's on the edge of something huge, isn't he? Like within about two months, we'll hear him announced as a lead in some enormous movie. Yeah, he's well, just getting so much good, uh, good word at the moment. Yeah, he is, and I think you know, like a lot of people that we've worked with, um, Shane Meadows in This Is England, gone on to you know really really good things. Um, and has real talent. I mean, people know him from Skins as well, but mm. we'll be, we talked about the Angelina Jolie, Unbroken, mm. World War II dr- uh, drama that he's going to be appearing in. He was sort of semi-linked to Fantastic Four, um, but that, I think, there's only yeah. in that, but at least that shows that he's on the radar in Hollywood yeah. if he wants to do that kind of stuff. But he seems like a guy that wants to be working with, you know, on a more kind of rootsy basis well, and he wants to pick his material. He's doing the next This Is England follow-up, isn't he? Uh, is it this, this is England 90? That's correct, yeah, he's come back. His character is back in business. Having, he couldn't be in the 86 mm. um, or 88 because of clashes, but uh, his character is coming back for the 1990 iteration. So, yeah, back with Shane Meadows again. Yeah, I think it's a real deal. And also, you know, you mentioned uh, Ben Mendelsohn, who's a phenomenal actor. Mm. Yeah, Ben Mendelsohn was, um, is fantastic in a very many movies. Animal Kingdom, the Aussie crime thriller, which I thought was excellent a few years back. And even in Dark Knight Rises, he, he wasn't in it very long, but he has a real screen presence and he channels um, a kind of inarticulate... 
I'm just going, yeah. <laughs> that was beautiful. <laughs> he channels an inarticulate kind of way, an inarticulate means of communicating with his son, you know, as an estranged father. And, and uh, But he, you know, he's a broil with rage inside as well. In fact, we're talking about angry screen presences. I think Ben Mendelsohn is certainly yeah. worth adding to that list. Absolutely. Uh, Ray Winston as well. Let's throw Ray, Ray Winston in there. Lovely, lovely fella. But uh, yeah, and when he gets angry, you wouldn't want to be in the same room as him. Uh, that's that was four stars in for Startup. Uh, and let's move on now to A Long Way Down, which is the adaptation of Nick Hornby's book, starring Pierce Brosnan, Aaron Paul, Tony Collette, and Imogen Poots. Puta, formerly of this parish. Puta! Puta. As <laughs> four lost souls who meet each other on a rooftop where they intend to commit suicide uh, until life finds a way. What are our thoughts on this one? A Long Way Down, yes. We interviewed the lovely, lovely, lovely Imogen Poots last week. Well, we interviewed her a while back. But anyway, so <laughs> she is in this film with, as mentioned, Pierce Brosnan and Tony Collette and Aaron Paul. And they play four people who meet at the top of Topper's Tower. So they meet at the top of this building, which is notorious for suiciders. Uh, I, I know there's a better word than that, but I can't think of it. <laughs> uh, but they, they meet there and it's all very very nice i guess after they meet they meet and they all suddenly decide uh, on new year's eve to, to 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 end it which is not really that funny and uh pierce brosnan takes a ladder out and he, he's about to do the thing uh shuffle off this mortal coil as, as the python boys would say but they come together and all see each other and they go right let's make a pact that by february the 14th uh, if we still want to do it then we do it but otherwise we've got to give each other a chance and we've got to give life a chance and they all agree and that's great and they, they go to the hospital after they go to a club and they make this connection and that's sweet but guess what happens they do find each other and they do spoilers guys they do find a meaning to life and friendships are made and all that kind of fuzzy good stuff but you don't really buy it you feel like this is a very odd film about a very serious topic which is played for if not laughs then that kind of Hornby-esque Hugh Granty charm and it doesn't really connect you feel a bit messed up and a bit peculiar a bit percolated you want to love all of these very charming well-acted roles and these characters you want to connect with them and you sort of do but one of your feet is still in the on another place which is this is odd I'm not comfortable Mm-hmm. what's going on I don't think it's that particularly well directed I don't feel like the script really really gets either funny or insightful or clever it's just kind of a bit messy and as much as I want to love the the, the, the people in it it's not the best chance for them to, to display their talents Imogen Poots of course is a ray of light as an Aaron Paul I feel like Aaron Paul has picked unfortunately a couple of roles recently which haven't done him justice and to be honest with you, I wouldn't even recommend this as a kind of watch with mum TV movie in a couple of years' time. I just think it's a bit of a disappointment, and the fact that producers decided to make a movie out of this topic for suicidal people decide to find each other, will I, won't they, kill themselves, doesn't work for the kind of movie they're making. Thank you, and goodbye. <laughs> it seems like a kind of an eclectic cast. Like, I know they're an eclectic group of people, and they've probably gone for... But, it, you know, I can see Brosnan and Colette together, but Aaron Paul, Imogen Poots... They're, they're, do they have good chemistry? They do, yes. I think Tony Collette is a little bit ostracised. She has a difficult task as well. In addition to all of this, she also has a, um, a disabled son that she is the carer for. And that's another really difficult, really important part of society that we... Like, I'm so, uh, yeah, maybe I'm, I'm investing too much of 
of what that is into this, but I couldn't connect with this film. There was so it, much in there. So you're, you're saying it's somewhat glib, perhaps. Yeah. I, I, I think I think one of the problems with this uh, with the movie, uh, which is you know it has its charms and it has its nice moments. I think one of the problems with the movie is that you, I never bought for a second that they were genuine about committing suicide and it's 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 a tonal tightrope to walk it's a really tough one to walk because uh, the book uh, Nick Hornby's novel which is which is very very good starts off exactly the same way the four four people meeting on a roof is told from their each of their separate points of view but then it has 250 pages to fill in the background and even right from the off you have the uh, Pierce Boston character Martin Sharp in the novel extolling uh, all the reasons why he wants to commit suicide. He's been. Uh, he's just gone to prison. He's a TV presenter. He's just gone to prison. Uh, he was caught. Not. A, he's not a pedophile necessarily, but he was caught having sex with a 15-year-old. He thought she was older, uh, and he's basically he's disgraced. His family want nothing to do with him, and that's all told in the first three or four pages. But it's still told in that very charming, charming, folksy Nick Hornby way. This one, I think, for this movie to really work, you have to believe that these guys genuinely want to commit suicide, and for that to happen, the movie has to be completely, totally different. And uh, it sadly does go for a bit of a, a knockabout about the boy, yeah. Which, uh, but like I say, it's not, it's not horrendous. This movie's been kicked from pillar to post, and we've given it two stars, uh, which is obviously not a good review either. But I've seen some real one-star worst film of the year. It's not that shockers. It's not that, uh, it's not that. Uh, but um, you know, it's it's. It's a, prop, a disappointment, probably. It sounds like the sort of thing that Hal Ashby could nail. You know what? I don't even think he could because it's not yeah. about that. It's not. Yeah. I know what you're saying. I know what you're saying. That would be too maudlin. I, I, there's, there needs to be some. You think it's it, unadaptable? It has, yes. I, I yes. In a weird way, probably. Yeah. I think the book is the book, and mm. you have the time and space and words and the intimacy between the author and the reader mm. to connect on that level about a variety of very difficult yeah. societal problems, then there's a movie. Two stars then for A Long Way Down. Uh, and let's move on to the last film we're going to discuss in detail this week, which is The Unknown Known, uh, which, uh, in which documentary master Errol Morris returns with uh, a look at the political impact of Donald Rumsfeld. Yes, he does. Yes, he does. Phil. Yes, he does. Um, well, the title is taken from... Secretary of State for Defence Donald Rumsfeld and kind of the architect of the uh, quote-unquote war on terror, uh, a press briefing he gave where he was discussing the kind of philosophy towards the threats that were potentially enveloping the United States, um, where he described, the no- he talked about the known knowns, the unknown knowns, the known unknowns, the knowny known knowns, <laughs> the, <laughs> the known 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 knowns, is, is the, and confused is, the hell out of everyone to this day. Is, the Dave, is David Bowie's The Laughing Known in there? The laughing known was in the yeah that was a deleted scene from a, from the press conference we never saw, but I, I just um yeah he 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 is an incredibly sort of interesting and at the same time elusive and evasive character Rumsfeld. If you've seen Errol Morris's The Fog of War, which won an Oscar, where he tackles his predecessor in the role Robert McNamara about his, Vietnam and about the kind of JFK post JFK uh, era in American foreign policy. That's a whole different. That's a whole different kind of beast, really, because McNamara was happy to confess to things that they'd, he'd done wrong and made mistakes. But in Rumsfeld's mind, he made no mistakes. Everything is an exercise in self-justification. Um, so, I guess where this film frustrates is that it does feel like he's trying to catch a vapor. You know, it's like that. You remember those games where you had to get a little metal ball into a mm-hmm. hole and you had to do, roll it around in the palm. It's incredibly. It's like that. You, you never quite gets the ball in the hole in this film because he never quite nails Rumsfeld to the mast. But I think there's an interesting thing. It's basically a film about 
semantics. It's about <laughs> using language, uh, the, the way you use language to kind of tie other people in knots and to justify <clears throat> yourself and to confuse and obfuscate. And in that sense, it's, it's kind of fascinating. And Morris uses this thing called the Interatron, where he has basically his interviewees talks direct to camera. Um, so he's kind of hidden in the side of the room and asks the questions. And there are some testy moments and they make, they make for good viewing. And he uses all his kind of, uh, it starts with a kind of aerial shot over the sea, which I think just kind of suggests that it, it, this is unknowable, massive thing that Rumsfeld's a big part of. But he never quite kind of get, gets deep beneath the surface of this man potentially because there is no deep beneath the surface of this man he's not a man that goes home and stays up at night because he's worried about torturing people in guantanamo bay in fact he blames that all on the cia so it's uh it's an interesting film about mm. a, an interesting character with a bit of an alice in wonderland sort of fairy tale fantasy land bent to it and we gave it four stars it's if you're interested in the sort of the last 10 15 years in world affairs and who the heck isn't then uh, it's worth checking out. And Errol Morris, of course, who's actually on the middle of his uh, first feature film uh, this year, um, is back with another documentary, which is always worth seeing. Um, I think slightly better to his last one, slightly better than his last one, Tabloid, um, perhaps not quite as good as The Fog of War. Okay, so uh, four stars then for the unknown known. We do know that's four stars. That's not unknown. Okay. Uh, also out this week is The Machine, which we gave three stars to, and Sven Gali which we also gave three stars to. Uh, so there you go. And that is it for this week's Empire Podcast. Join us next week for a bumper-sized edition when we'll be talking to Captain America, the Winter Soldier stars, Anthony Mackie and Sebastian Stan. That is a lot of fun. I'm not sure how much it will actually be usable. Ali, what do you think? I cannot comment. <laughs> okay, we'll see. We'll also be joined by Reese Shearsmith and Steve Pemberton, creators of the brilliant TV show Insight Number 9, as you've heard. And Kermit the Frog. Who? Kermit the Frog? I think he's in a... Think about Muppets, I'm not quite sure. He's here to talk Muppets Most Wanted. And if that's not a must-listen podcast, then I've forgotten everything I thought I knew. Until then, it is goodbye from Phil. Goodbye. It's goodbye from Ali. Bye-ya. It's goodbye from Ollie. Goodbye. It's goodbye from me. I'm off to bake a peach cobbler with Kate Winslet. See you next week. Mmm.